Um, some of you guys may not know this song. The way I play is really um, modern, I guess. I guess you could say modern. I don't know. And I always have to find my key before I do this like last minute thing. So I don't know. This song's called. See, I, I forgot the name of the song too. Um. Yeah, God knows. At the end of, just tell me what the song is at the end. I know what I'm playing. <laughs> Hold on. Anybody know what the name of that song was? Was it Awake My Soul? How Deep Is the Father's Love? Yes, I got it. Okay. I tried. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. No, that was great. I enjoyed it. All right. Haggai chapter 2 tonight. Haggai chapter 2. And we will uh, 
take a few minutes to give some background to the message this morning or this evening. Uh, just want to, without going into a deep history lesson, um, the children of Israel, of course, uh, went through a series of kings uh, from Saul and then David and then Solomon. And then from there they began to split the kingdoms and uh, you begin to see several kings over uh, ten tribes of Israel and two tribes of Judah. And at uh, some point in history, God raised up a world empire by the name of Babylon. It was uh, ruled by Nebuchadnezzar first. He was one of the first ones to do it. And when the first great world empire came through, Nebuchadnezzar came and uh, besieged Jerusalem. And uh, that's where we find him hauling off Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and others like him carried off into Babylon. And uh, during that time, uh, the gates of Jerusalem were burned uh, with fire. The temple was destroyed, uh, and it lay in waste. And then we come across a young man by the name of Nehemiah. It's interesting to me, in Scripture, almost all of the other authors of Scripture were either prophets or apostles or great men like Moses that were used mightily of God in leadership positions Nehemiah was simply the cupbearer of the king. If you were to look at him in today's society, you would say, this is just an average church member. And yet God did extraordinary things through him as he went to Artaxerxes the king and asked for uh, the uh, permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. And we all know the story, how that Nebuchadnezzar went back and God prospered him. God met the material needs, God met the labor needs, and God offered the protection that was needed during that time. And they built the wall in record days, and they laid the foundation or repaired the foundation for the temple again. And the idea was that once Nebuchadnezzar uh, left the area, that they were going to uh, rebuild the temple. Ezra was a contemporary of his, and while Nebuchadnezzar was working on rebuilding the physical city of Jerusalem, Ezra was preaching and was uh, seeing revival come to the nation of Israel and was rebuilding them spiritually And the nation of Israel gets on fire for God, and they have a great revival. We won't take time to read that tonight, but you can read that in the last uh, half of the book of Nehemiah. You can read about the great uh, revival that took place there and how that when the reading of Scripture was done uh, in the place that God convicted the hearts of the people, and they came back to God. And uh, they were very excited about these things. And then all of a sudden, the work comes to a screeching halt. For a number of years now, the walls have been rebuilt, the foundation of the temple has been laid, but they have not done anything to rebuild the temple itself. And that brings us to where we come into uh, the book of Haggai. I'm going to back up into chapter 1. We're going to take a running start into chapter 2 and uh, kind of get into the message. And again, the groundwork is important for us to understand what God is going to tell his children about this new temple. Look with me, if you will, in Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius, king of the, uh, uh, the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. 
Ye clothe you, but there is none warm, and he that earneth wages earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Kind of sounds like the society we live in today, doesn't it? Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because mine house that is waste, and ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, upon the corn, upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord. If you have a pen, you ought to underline that phrase in your Bible. Their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God, had sent him. And the people did fear before the Lord. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. In the four and twentieth day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius, the king. Father, we pray now that you'll bless uh, the message this evening. And Father, speak to our hearts. I pray that you will show us your truth. And Father, may we at the beginning of every service that we attend, at the beginning of every preaching time that we hear, may we go ahead and make our decision that if you will show us your truth, we will walk in it. Father, may we not wait till an invitation time to try to struggle and battle with the Holy Spirit. But may we as Christians be already yielded to the leading of your Holy Spirit. And as he pricks and as he prods and as he moves in our hearts and our lives, I pray that you would help us to be sensitive enough to it, to recognize it, that we would respond appropriately. I pray that you would give grace during this time tonight. Lord, we certainly don't deserve your favor in this service, but we ask it. We ask that your Holy Spirit would have free reign and free course and that he would work in the hearts of men. And so we pray and ask tonight that you would receive the honor and the glory from this service. All that is said and all that is done here tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've read here a very stern warning and a terse warning from Christ, uh, from God himself, as he speaks through his messenger, uh, Haggai. And I like what is said in verse number 13, and it's not our message tonight, but boy, I wish we could preach on it. Uh, how that when God's messenger with, with God's message comes to the people, God stirs up the hearts of men. And uh, we have all kinds of ideas today about how to stir up a church and how to stir up God's people. And may I say that a lot of the modern ideas of how to do this have nothing to do with God's messenger or God's message. But it has to do with entertainment and has to do with uh, the spice and the dazzle of the world's philosophies. May I say we need a revival of God's servants standing up with God's message and preaching to God's people and getting out of the way and letting God stir up the hearts. And when that happens, revival will come. We find that this takes place in Haggai as he speaks through his servant Haggai and he gives him the message to say. You say, Brother Greg, how do you know that? 
Because several times in first number, chapter number 1, we find Haggai the prophet making this statement. Thus saith the Lord. I don't know about you, but any time a prophet says, thus saith the Lord, if I'm listening to it, I'm going to perk up and pay special attention. I'm going to say, wait a minute, this is not the prophet's idea, or it's not his mindset, but this is God speaking through Haggai. And I want to hear what God has to say. And so God comes to his people, and he says, some of you are saying that it's not time to build my house. In fact, you're going about building your own houses. He said, all this time you're doing this and building these nice sealed houses, these laps of luxury that you've built for yourselves. And he said, my house is over here lying waste. He said, then you wonder why I don't put my hand of blessing. You scratch your head and you don't understand it, why you work so hard and see so little. You don't understand why you labor and you earn wages to put it into a bag full of holes. By the way, I will stand here tonight and tell you that there have been times in my life when I have been serving God and doing the work that I knew God wanted me to do but not seeing any fruit from it. And it's the same reason. You say, well, Brother Greg, you're doing God's work. Or there may be times in your life where you've recognized and say, but Brother Greg, I was doing God's work. But can I tell you this, that if we've not taken the principles from this chapter and put them into practice in our lives, we're earning wages to put them into a bag of holes. We come to chapter number 8. He tells them in verse number 8 that they're to go up into the mountain and bring wood and build the house. Whose house is he speaking about here? His house, right? God's house. We get to chapter number 2, and the people are stirred up. God's messenger, God's message. And they come and they stir up the hearts of Zerubbabel. They stir up the hearts of Joshua. They stir up uh, the hearts of the people. And in chapter 2, they say, you're right, Haggai. I'm thankful that God told us these things. Let's get busy. And they rolled up their sleeves and they began to build the temple. We pick up now in chapter 2. I want us to read several verses from chapter 2. It's very, very important that we see this. In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth year, a day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? In other words, there should be some of you that still remember it the way it used to be. And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison as, uh, of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and the work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I commanded with you, when you came out of covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Somewhere between chapter 1 and chapter 2, the children of Israel rolled their sleeves up and built the temple. They rebuilt it. Now, I don't know how much you've read or studied about the temple that Solomon built. Magnificent. Probably one of the most elegant and decorated structures that ever had been built prior to that time and probably ever shall be built. 
I mean, we're talking about gold inlays on the ceiling, gold-plated walls. We're talking about tapestries from some of the finest places around the world, vessels of, of the temple that were precious and precious metalworking. And when you read about the old temple, you think, boy, this is an amazing thing. But the children of Israel, when they rebuilt the temple, they did not have all of the resources that they had back in Solomon's day, and so they did the best they could. But the truth of the matter is, the temple really, from a physical standpoint, was just not quite as nice as Solomon's temple had been. And so we find in verses 2 and 3 that there are some of the folks that are complaining about this, some of the older people. And they're saying, boy, this, this sure isn't like it used to be. Boy, I remember that old temple, and it was certainly had, had a lot more glory in it than this temple is. And God puts them to rest. I want you to notice tonight what God says here, because I think it's very, very important. And there's a principle of Scripture here that many times we read through this passage and we completely miss. But we find that God comes to the rescue here, and He says in verse number 4, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, the son of Joseph, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. Don't let it bother you. Keep working. Keep doing what you're doing. For I am with you, saith the Lord. Can I tell you this tonight? That's the only thing that mattered. It did not matter whether the gold inlay was the way that it should be or not and the way it used to be back in Solomon's day. The only thing that mattered was God was with them. And by the way, that's all that ever matters. And then we find as we go on down in verse number 5, According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations... And the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with, what's the next word there? Glory. The new temple is built, and some people were complaining and saying it's just not full of the glory that it used to have. And all they were looking at was the outside, wasn't it? And God comes and He says, don't you worry about Zerubbabel, you just keep right on working because I'm going to come and I'm going to fill this house with my glory. I want you to notice something here that God makes a promise to them. He lets them know that even though this second temple is not as nice as the first temple, He's going to fill it with so much glory that it is going to far surpass the glory of the first temple. Look what He says in verse number 8. And the silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former saith the Lord of hosts. Now, can God lie? Absolutely not. How in the world would this, what, what some people would call this, this rinky-dink-looking temple, how in the world could it ever be far full, full of more glory than the first one if it wasn't built to that level? It was all dependent upon God filling the house with His glory. Now, all of this is groundwork, and stay with me for a few minutes. Because this is the most important thing in a Christian's life. We find in the Old Testament that God's temple was where? First in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, right? That was where he dwelt. And they get to Israel, they build a temple. Solomon's allowed to build the temple. And that was where God resided in the Old Testament. Was it not? In the Holy of Holies, we found the Shekinah glory of God. 
It's where God met with the children of Israel. It's where he, his presence was in the nation. But now we live in the New Testament. When the crucifixion took place, the veil in the, between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place was rent in two from top to bottom. And now could you imagine the first time ever that the high priest walked in and with his own eyes could look straight into the Holy of Holies and to see the mercy seat for the first time. Could you imagine how he must have felt all those years he had to back in and couldn't even look at it because it would have killed him and to sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. And now for the first time after the crucifixion he walks in and there's the Holy of Holies split wide open. He looks into the mercy seat for the first time ever and has full access to God. And now we live in the New Testament and God's glory doesn't reside in a human tabernacle anymore, does it? Where is God's tabernacle now? Where does He live now? Where's God's house? In us. Some people would say, well, the Keith Heights Baptist Church is the temple of God. No, wait a minute. The Bible doesn't teach that. Well, it's time to go to the Lord's house. Well, if I'm going to the Lord's house, I'm going to get in my prayer closet. And I'm going to let God do His work in His vessel, in His, in His tabernacle, if you will. This, what we have here at Keith Heights Baptist Church, is not the house of God. It's made up of the house of God because he now lives inside of us. Now, keep that truth in mind as we come back now and we reflect on some things here. In chapter number 1, the children of Israel are rebuked for running every man to their own house and his house lie, what? Waste. He said the result of that is you work and you labor and you put it into a bag of holes. The result of that is you sow an awful lot. You're handing out tracts everywhere you go. You're splitting the seed out. But you're not seeing much fruit from that. You're knocking on a lot of doors and you're inviting a lot of people to church, but you're not seeing the result of it. Why? Because this house lie waste. Oh, I'm saved. The Holy Spirit of God lives inside of me. I have no doubt of that. The Bible teaches that. But what have I done since then to make that temple a holy and a fit vessel fit for the Master's use? We've preached several times now and had the opportunity to preach a few times here about the importance of our walk with God. My friend, I cannot express enough tonight that soul winning in the Great Commission, believe it or not, is the second highest priority of a Christian. Our personal walk with God and the holiness of His temple on the inside is the first priority of the Christian. If the vessel is mired, if the vessel is marred and dirty, it cannot do the work of the Master. And the first and foremost priority of every Christian, when we get a vision for those that are lost in world evangelization and we think, boy, we want to see more mission work being done, the first priority we ought to do is get on our faces before God and say, God, build this temple. And Lord, fill it with your glory so much that it far exceeds the glory of the old temple. And may this temple see more work and more done for the cause of Christ than the other temple ever saw. So it's very, very important we understand this principle that my first, second, and third priority in the Christian life is my walk with God. Building my life in such a way. Now if my... If my body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which we know from Scripture it is, 
What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. The Bible says, therefore glorify God. Now, if my body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, then that brings with it some things that, to be real honest with you, make me a little uneasy. You remember the story in Daniel, after Nebuchadnezzar passed away and his grandson took power, Belteshazzar, wicked, wicked king of uh, Babylon. He decided he was going to throw a party, and he threw this long party. I don't know how long it went on, probably a month or more, and, and he got bored with the party. You remember the story? And he said, I want you to bring the vessels that we brought from Jerusalem from the house of God, the holy vessels that were set apart and sanctified for the master's use. I want you to bring them in. That'll kind of spruce up the party a little bit. That'll kind of make it fun. Because there was never a vessel built as ornate as those vessels. So the king brings them in and the party begins. And it's not long before a man's hand appears over on the wall and begins writing on it. They can't understand it. They call Daniel and Daniel says... The interpretation is, Thou have been weighed in the balances and aren't found wanting. He said, Tonight the kingdom will be taken from you. And as he was speaking, the Medes and the Persians were coming under the wall to defeat Babylon. Belteshazzar suffered the penalty of disgracing that which was God's. The temple was a place that was sanctified, it was a place that was kept holy. Now, I, I can't go into all of the details of the temple, and I certainly don't claim to understand all of it. But it was a place where redemption took place. And when the sacrifices were made, the priests would have to make the sacrifices. And in the outer court of the temple, there was what was called the laver. The laver is the only piece of furniture in the temple that did not have specific dimensions given by God as to how large it was to be built. But it was the place where the priests would bathe themselves in order to be clean. They had to bathe themselves before they ever made the sacrifice. And then they would go and they would make the sacrifice. And if anything unclean touched them, between the time of going from the laver to the time of the sacrifice, they would have to go back to the laver and they would have to, uh, again, bathe themselves and put on new clothing and make sure that they were completely unspotted. It's very, very important. Because this was the temple of the Holy Ghost. This was the temple of God. This is where God lived in this holy, omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful God lived in their presence. And He demanded that it be kept unspotted. And He demanded that it be kept holy. And that the vessels were to be sanctified. They were to be set apart. Why is it in this day and age when we look at the temple of the Holy Ghost... We think, well, it really doesn't matter how I defile this temple. If we had lived in the Old Testament days, most all of us in this room would have been stoned to death for the way we treated the temple of God. Because God's temple was to remain holy. Say, Brother Greg, that's a horrible thing to say. No, He's worthy of it. It's not about us, it's about Him. And when we see God for who He really is, it's not hard for us to say, Lord, I want my temple to be filled with Your glory. Lord, I want my temple to be in such a way that you don't feel like you're being pushed out of it, but you feel invited to it. Lord, I want my temple to be so clean and so ready that you feel at home in it, that you feel comfortable in it. 
And the, and the, the prophet here, uh, by inspiration of, the God, of God himself, and who, God himself came to him and said, I want you to tell this to my people. He says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Consider your ways. For you see, all of us get to the place in our lives where we become kind of lethargic, don't we, about our Christian life? We become a little bit uh, not really concerned about our temple. Does it matter? We live in a day and age where people say, well, it really doesn't matter what's on the outside. The Bible never says that. And I know some of you are sitting there thinking, but what about that verse, Brother Greg, that says, man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Well, you need to go back and reread that verse. What is our purpose in this life once we're saved? To go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So I guess I have to ask this question. Does it matter what man thinks? Yeah, it does quite a bit. Our testimony is precious. You get somebody out here that's a drug addict, doesn't have any problems with it, knows it's wrong, doesn't care, and he goes out here and tries to knock on the door, and he gets all discombobulated while he's trying to talk to the person. He says, you know, bless God, I have liberty in Christ. I can take drugs, no big deal. Do you think that person's going to want to trust Christ as their Savior? Not at all. For you see, man looks on the outward appearance. If anything, that ought to convict us and say, boy, the outward appearance matters. It matters a lot. For you see, the outward condition of a man is a reflection of what's on the inside. I'm going to say something here tonight that I hope you'll get and understand. It's possible to be wrong on the inside and to look right on the outside. I'm not saying that that's not possible. All of us have been there. We've known people. We feel that way. But I will promise you this. It is absolutely impossible to be right on the inside and to be wrong on the outside. If you're wrong on the outside, you can go ahead and mark it down. You're wrong on the inside too. It cannot be done. The temple is a very, very important thing. In fact, Paul told Timothy that he needed to be a vessel of honor, not a vessel of dishonor. My wife has these dishes we bought when, I guess, right after we got married. They're the special dishes. You know which ones I'm talking about, right, men? Y'all know which ones I'm talking about. When company comes, we get to eat on them. We call it paper plates. (laughs) No, we don't really. But she has the special dishes. Now, if I go to the china hutch and I open that beautiful glass door and I reach inside and go to grab that plate, my wife has radar ears. I mean, she can be at work in the hospital, and she'll pick up that phone and say, Greg, get out of the china hut. You know why? Because those are special dishes. They're for special occasions. I don't know what warrants it being a special occasion. Because we never use ours, even when company comes. She gets there and she says, it's just too much work. Let's just get the paper plates. And so we never use the vessels. But those are set aside for the master's use. Now, I'm fortunate that I'm young enough. I've grown up in modern society where I've never had to live in a house that did not have indoor plumbing. But my mom and dad grew up in a day and age where 
They remember as kids living in a house that did not have indoor plumbing. They had what was called an outhouse. And for some of you young people, you'll have to ask your moms or dads or grandpas and grandmas what the outhouse was. And up north in where they lived in Connersville, Indiana, it got cold in the wintertime. And in the wintertime, you didn't want to get up in the middle of the night and go out to the outhouse. And so they had a specific instrument in the house. They called it a slop jar. And it was used for a specific purpose. And I don't mean to be crude or gross tonight in the service, but I want you to understand something tonight. It would be ludicrous for us to use the pot of the slop jar for the purpose for which it was not intended. Because it's corrupted, isn't it? We would never take that and put a big bowl of chili in it and set it on the table. But boy, there's some dishes I got in my china hutch that I guarantee I wouldn't mind eating off of. You know why? Because they're set apart. You know what's so sad in our day and age is we allow our temples to become defiled. And in fact, in the sight of God, they become so defiled that he feels like, I can't use that vessel. I can't fill that vessel with my glory. That, that, that temple is going to have to uh, do without my glory in it because they've defiled it so. I'm thankful God gives us second chances because the truth of the matter is every one of us defile God's temple every day. And that's not what Haggai's getting at here. Haggai's getting at this thing of let's build it up. Every day let's make it a little nicer. Every day, let's work on that thing of keeping it sanctified for the Master's use. This, this temple that, that has lain in waste for so many years. And what is so sad to say is many times there have been folks that have been saved for a number of years, for a good length of time, and, and they've gotten no closer to building their temple than the day they got saved. They've gotten no It's interesting to me. In, I believe it's the book of Ephesians, the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I've heard people say, well, boy, there it shows you, you've got to work for your salvation. That's not what it's speaking about at all. But if you'll read it in its context, it's saying now that you are saved, you're to build on that foundation. You're to work that salvation out. You're supposed to do good works. I think in our Sunday school lesson this morning, it made a statement somewhere along the lines as we went over last week's lessons that we don't, we don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because we're saved. We're to be building that temple. We're to be sanctifying. We're to be growing closer and closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we want His glory. We want to be filled with His glory. It's interesting to me that when He was speaking, when He was teaching the, the, the disciples on the Sermon on the Mount, He taught them, He said, Ye are the light of the world. Notice he didn't say, I am. We look at that and we say, well, that's a peculiar statement. Christ is the light of the world, and he is. Why would he tell the disciples, ye are the light of the world? Because that light was supposed to reside in them. And then they were supposed to go around the world sharing that light everywhere they went. That Shekinah glory of God that is missing in this day and age. You ever met a Christian before that before you ever even spoke to them for the first time, you knew they were a Christian. You ever met anybody like that? 
There was something different about them. You know what? The glory of God was filling their temple. How about our temples tonight? It ought to be the priority of our lives to say, Lord, I want to build your temple. Lord, I want your glory in my life. More than anything in this world, I long for you. The psalmist penned it this way. He says, as the heart panteth after the water brooks. The heart, H-A-R-T, like a deer. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so longeth my, or panteth my soul after thee, O Lord. That we would long for the Lord to come and fill our lives. Not to just be a part of our lives. Not to just give us our ticket to heaven and then, Lord, I'm not going to have you an active part of my life. But to make God a vital part of our lives each and every day. To wake up in the morning and say, Lord, if you don't help me, I can't make it through the day. Because we're like that wearied sheep we talked about this morning. We need the shepherd to carry us. To get up every morning and say, Lord, if you don't help me through the day, my my enemies are going to consume me. My my, uh, problems in the world are going to consume me and I cannot make it through a day without your help. The Bible says in chapter number 2 of Haggai in verse number uh, number 7, And I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory. You say, well, Brother Greg, I'm not much. didn't matter what the temple was outwardly. But it sure mattered that the glory was filling the inside of it. You say, well, I don't have a lot of talent. But if God fills the house with His glory, that house is going to be greater than the first temple. That we would seek for God's fullness in our lives. My dad used to say for many, many years, and he pastored uh, just under 40 years, 39 and about a half a year before he passed away. And he would make this statement. I bet I've heard him say it probably, probably a thousand times, I would think. He said, you know, Greg, a lot of people have just enough Christianity to make their lives miserable. They get just enough, and they don't go any further. And they are miserable in their Christian lives. One foot in the world, one foot in the church. And they're torn and they struggle and they just don't understand. I thought there was going to be joy in the Christian life if we'll seek for the fullness of God in our lives. Where are the days that God's people would get in their prayer closets? That's a word we don't use much anymore because they don't exist. There's a man in our church years ago when I was a little kid. I was probably oh, probably five or six years old, I would think. Maybe seven years old. His late name was Louis Noah. He was a Cuban. He had come over years and years ago. He and his family had found a way to escape Cuba and come over to the States. And he was a dear friend of ours. He built a new house. He was a contractor. And when he built the new house, they wanted to have us over to eat, the pastor and his family over to eat. And I never, never forget going to his house and seeing the house that God had allowed him to build. Beautiful thing. He showed us through every room of the house, and he kept saying, man, I'm saving the best for last. I'm saving the best for last, Pastor. You're going to love this, this, this last thing I'm going to show you. And every time he'd go right through the house, he was excited about it, but he was so excited about showing this one thing to my dad. And I'll never forget, we went out right outside of the kitchen. There was a door. It looked like a coat closet. And he opened up the door, and there was about an 8-foot by 10-foot room with a light inside and a kneeling bench inside. And he said, Pastor, 
this is my prayer closet. He had built his house around it. I thought, boy, we're missing that today, aren't we? We're missing our walk with God. And then we scratch our heads and say, why am I miserable as a Christian? Why is it that it seems like I try so hard in the Christian life and I don't seem to make any progress in the Christian life? Why is it that when I do hand out tracts, nobody really responds to it? When I knock on a door or invite somebody that I meet at work, nobody seems to respond. Why is it? I would ask you this question. How's your temple? How's your temple? I firmly believe this. That if every child of God that trusts Christ as their Savior at Keitha Heights Baptist Church, if every one of us would find time every single day to get alone with God. I'm not talking about a five-minute devotion. I'm talking about getting alone with God. My friend, I believe the windows of heaven would open on this place. We would be bursting out of the seams with people trusting Christ as their Savior, coming to Christ. Why? Because God's glory would fill His house. Not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that God has done. And then we ought to sanctify that house. Just like they did in the Old Testament, keeping it clean, keeping it holy. We need to look at our temple and say, Lord, is it holy? Is it clean? Is it vessel a vessel that is fit to be used by the Master? How's our temple tonight? Oh, Brother Greg, I'll tell you, I just I don't like all the rules. It's not about rules, it's about our relationship with God. It really isn't. When God tells us we ought to do something or tells us we ought not to do something in Scripture, it's not something we do out of obligation or duty. That's not our motivation for obedience. Our motivation for obedience is because we love Him with all of our hearts. My wife has not been feeling well the last couple of days. and The other morning, I, didn't, I would never have told her this, and if you tell her this, I'll deny it. <laughs> I had my plate full with work and some things going on at work, and she wasn't able to pick my kids up from school, and so I had to deal with that. And then my daughter had two ball games in a row, two nights in a row, and I had to deal with that. And then my niece needed a ride to work, and I had to deal with that. Things that normally my wife would help do, and she wasn't able to do them, and so I did them. And every time she would ask me, the first thought in my mind is, where am I going to find the time? I don't know if I'm going to have the time. And immediately my thought would be, but yes, I'll do it. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I love every one of y'all. But if y'all had asked me to do that last week, I would have said, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm too busy. I'm stretched too thin. But my wife asked me to do it. And some of you men are sitting there saying, oh, you just did it because you didn't want her to get mad at you. And that may be true. I'm not henpecked, but I am housebroken. I promise you that. 
But no, you know why my wife never heard me complain or say, no, I don't think I can do that. I'm too busy right now. I've got too much going on. We'll have to find somebody else to do it. Because I love her. And it was not burdensome for me to do it. Every time I had to drive back into town after I'd come home and pick up something from Walmart for her, I'm not a Walmart person. That is my wife's thing, not me. I didn't gripe or complain about it because I love her. Why is it when God tells us certain things or asks certain things of us, we complain and say, boy, I just, that's just too much. I'm working on it, but boy, I tell you, that's hard. It's not hard. Not if we love Him. Our walk with God. How's our temple? How's our temple? Some of us need to go home tonight and get beside our beds and say, Lord, I want to consider my ways. Foundation's been there for a long time, Lord. I got saved a long time ago. That foundation's still sitting there. Because I've been more interested in building my own house than I have yours. Now I want to start building on yours. How's your temple tonight? Let's stand together. Father, we pray that you'll bless the preaching of your word. Lord, we've done our best tonight, and I know it's not been adequate enough, but I pray that your Holy Spirit will have gotten the glory through it and that your Holy Spirit will work in the hearts of men. Lord, as we leave this place, I pray that you'll help us to contemplate the truth of this passage. Father, it's not about us looking real pretty and having all these great talents to use for you, but it certainly is all about you filling us. That your glory would fill our temple. That we would be filled with all of the fullness of God. Father, I pray that there would be some here tonight that would look at their hearts as I've had to do often in my own life and as I'm sure many in this room have had to do often in their lives and say, Lord, the foundation's been there, but I, truth be told, I haven't been really working on it. I haven't been trying to build that temple for you. I've been more focused on my own things. Lord, I pray that you'll help us as we leave here tonight to contemplate these truths and may it be the result of us seeking our hearts. Lord, maybe before we go to bed tonight or maybe first thing in the morning as we get up that we would take a few moments and get alone with you and say, Lord, how is my temple today? Would you come and fill it? Lord, that we would see a church that is full of your glory not because of its buildings or its parking lots, but because of its people. And so, Father, we pray that you'll bless the preaching and the teaching tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.